Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Child behavior problems are always a concern for parents. Sometimes it can seem for parents of special needs kids that behavior concerns are constant. Well, for as long as anyone can remember, the basic correction method for misbehavior was centered on punishment and discipline. However, that model often fails miserably, and we know this is true because it's evidenced by the fact that we have so many prisons full of the results of that failure. Over the past few decades, a new model of behavior modification called the Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, or CPS, has been developed with a much greater rate of success. This model was founded by Dr. Ross Green, who, while he was working on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, began to take a different look at kids with behavior problems. From his organization's website, livesinthebalance.org, the model is based on the premise that challenging behavior occurs when the expectations being placed on a kid exceed the kid's capacity to respond adaptively, and that some kids are lacking the skills to handle certain demands and expectations. So the emphasis of the model isn't on kids' challenging behavior, which is just a manner that they're expressing the fact that their expectations are having difficulty meeting. Nor does the model focus on psychiatric diagnosis, which are simply categories of challenging behaviors. Rather, the model focuses on identifying skills that the kid is lacking and the expectations that he or she are having difficulty meeting. To tell us more about how the collaborative and proactive solutions model works and why it works, we're being joined by Kim Hopkins, who is the Director of Outreach for LivesInTheBalance.org. One thing to note as you're listening, Kim refers to the punishment discipline model as Plan A and the CPS model as Plan B. Kim, welcome to Special Parents Confidential. Can you start off by telling us about Dr. Green's background and how he began to develop the collaborative and proactive solutions approach? Sure. Um, Well, not long after he got out of school, because of course this was not the way he was trained in school, um, which most of us are not, um, he was working in a clinic with families, and he jokes that he thought he was providing very good care, Um, but he was noticing that a couple different things. He was noticing that the challenging kids that families were coming to him for help for, uh, first of all, they weren't challenging every second of every day. Um, And that was leading him to believe that it must be under certain conditions that they're challenging. So we got curious about that. He was also noticing that the same parents that were coming in to talk about a challenging child would have other children who were not challenging. And so, of course, in his kind of traditional training, um, he was taught that it's all about, you know, inconsistent, non-contingent parenting. Um, But he was realizing that that's not the case, that these parents um, also had kids who were functioning very well. And so that got him curious. And so that kind of started him on the path of realizing that kids are must be challenging because they lack the skills not to be, and there are certain conditions that require those skills. Um, And when kids don't have the skills to meet those conditions, that's when they show us their challenging behavior. Um, And so that that really took his career in a whole different direction than it had started from. Okay, so then what are some of the challenging behaviors that typify the child that needs to be helped through the collaborative and proactive solutions approach? Um, Well, it's a great question because certainly the first book he wrote called um, The Explosive Child is a little bit misleading. And that was really a publisher's choice for the title. That was not his choice Um, because it kind of leads one to believe that the model only works for kids who are uh, assaultive and aggressive and, and, and all of that. And 
Um, with Raising Human Beings, his book that came out, gosh, it must be over a year ago now, um, he really was able to, to kind of talk to the world about how CPS is useful for, um, for all kids, not just kids who are explosive and aggressive, not just kids who are failing out of school and having, you know, major issues that, that see, there's really no reason not to use CPS. Um, so even kids who are considered neurotypical can benefit from unmet expectations being addressed collaboratively instead of through power. Um, and certainly uh, I see that in my, in my own home um, with my, my oldest, who is um, a very neurotypical child, does school very well, but has some unsolved problems and some lagging skills. And, you know, if I use plan A and solve them unilaterally, which of course involves some sort of power, uh, things don't go very well between us and it doesn't, it doesn't get things going better. And when I collaborate with her, and seek to solve the problem proactively together, understanding her perspective, we come to solutions that are much more durable, that satisfy both of our concerns, and uh, our relationship is stronger for it. That's great. That's great. So what are the differences in a traditional approach that primarily focuses on finding a psychiatric diagnosis for the child's behavior versus the collaborative and proactive solutions approach? Well, I would start by saying that we certainly recognize that diagnoses are currently the gateway for kids obtaining services that they need. I would also say that I'm sorry that that is still the case because um, diagnoses, you know, they're, they're really primarily just a list of behaviors and um, they don't really tell parents or classroom teachers very much about how to help the child. And our, our model is not focused on behaviors. Our model is focused on the problems that precipitate the behaviors. So, you know, we, we talk about our model being an upstream model where when kids are in the water floating downstream, that's when they're in their behavior and, and doing their behavior. And a lot of models focus on getting the kids out of the water, rescuing them, and, you know, we find that the most durable solutions are produced when we get out of the water, dry off, we walk upstream and we figure out what pushed the kid in the water in the first place. Hmm. And when we, when we do that, we find unsolved problems or unmet expectations and um, lagging skills behind those unmet expectations. So, you know, the, the world placed an expectation on a kid that the kid was not able to meet. And the reason behind that, the research in the neurosciences says, and they've said it for decades now, that that's because the kid had lacked the skills to meet the expectation. And that's why they fell in the water and we saw behavior. And so again, traditionally, um, a lot of models focus on modifying that behavior. And our model is very different in that we're focused on unsolved problems and helping kids, partnering with kids to solve those problems. And when we do that, we end up indirectly, but very powerfully teaching the skills that they were lacking in the first place. Right. So you go more toward the actual behavior of what's causing the problem rather than dealing with just the symptoms. Oh, absolutely. We, we've, well, we view behavior as a fever. It's a signal that something's wrong. And so we've got to look upstream to figure out what was wrong, what happened that the kid couldn't handle um, and why couldn't they handle it? And we, when we do the very hard work of figuring out why 
kids are challenging and when they're challenging, answering those two questions. We have a single-sided, single sheet of paper that helps you to do that. Uh, it's the biggest favor you can do in the life of a behaviorally challenging kid. Um, and then we are able to focus our interventions on working together with kids to solve problems, thereby teaching them skills. And that's how we prevent them from falling in the water in the first place. That's great, great. Now, it seems that most of the punishment and control methods for behavior modification seem to cause a lot of lifetime trauma for children, and it's rarely dealt with when those kids reach adulthood. So why are so many educators and law enforcement officials reluctant to try an approach like the collaborative and proactive solutions? Um, it's a good question. Um, hope Slowly, the research is being uh, looked into and understood. I'm not quite sure why it's taken 50 plus years to have that happen, but uh, and I'm talking about before CPS was even um, around, but just research in the neurosciences that, that tells us why behaviorally challenging kids are challenging. Um, I find that, you know, a lot of folks, it comes down to them being worried that their concerns won't be addressed, um, which is actually kind of interesting because, uh, you know, we talk about there are three different options for handling unmet expectations. We call them plans, plan A, plan B, and plan C. Uh, plan A is when we solve the problem unilaterally, often using power. That's the traditional approach. Plan B is our model. And plan C is when you set the expectation aside for now. And so when, you know, when we're dealt with with plan A, whether it's when we were kids or with our bosses or whatever, our expect, uh, I'm sorry, our, um, our, our concerns do not get met. And so it's no surprise to me that adults are worried about their concerns not being met when they go to look at this model. Like how else do they get met other than plan A? Well, they do. They get pursued using plan B or collaborative and proactive solutions. They just get pursued in a way that is collaborative. It's proactive. It's within the context of a strong relationship. And it has an eye on teaching kids skills that they lack. Um, so the model, uh, kind of going back to your earlier question, it it's also useful with adults. This is a great way to solve problems together. Um, you know, and so, you know, when I run into somebody who is hesitant about the model, I seek to understand where they're coming from. What are their concerns about it? What are they worried about? And then, you know, I let them know mine and we work hard together to make sure that all of our concerns are addressed. And then we get some forward movement there. Right. Do you ever hear from parents that some might think that this might require a lot more effort, perhaps? Or is it just something that they're just not aware of uh, being able to do? Well, certainly that is one of the major concerns that comes up, both from parents and educators. I actually just had a group of educators that asked me that um, right before we hopped on together. Um, and, and the thing is, when you think about, again, three plans for handling an unmet expectation, and I should be real clear that having expectations is great. You need expectations. Um, that's how you have influence with kids. It's when they're not met, that's when you need a plan. So again, plan A, solving the problem unilaterally through use of power, usually. Plan B is solving the problem collaboratively. That's our model. And plan C is setting it aside for now. And so, um, Oh my goodness, I just lost track of what your question was. <laughs> no, I was, Well, we might as well move on and uh, go with what I was going to ask anyway, which is parents are usually a major factor in the behaviors of the child. So how much involvement should there be on the part of the parents in the collaborative and proactive solutions approach? 
And that just reminded me of what your question was about time. Right. So um, I'll answer the time and then I'll answer this one because the time's a great one. Okay. So when we're using plan A to solve problems and it's not producing durable solutions, meaning we have to do it over and over and over and over again, it's a time suck. It's taking up our time. You know, it's it might be surprising us and, t- you know, c- catching us off guard. The kid's in the water again and now we have to address it. Right. Um when you use plan B and you work proactively when kids are not in the water, it's it's a different shift of time. You're shifting your time upstream. And by spending that time upstream, you're going to save yourself time in the end because the kid's going to stop falling in the water so much. And so it's a, it's about helping people to understand, you know, what they've been doing. They're talking to us probably because it hasn't been working and they've been spending a ton of time. I actually had a teacher time herself on how much time she was spending doing plan A because she thought she was going to prove us wrong. Then she learned our model. Wasn't even quite that good at it yet, but then, you know, was timing herself on how much time she was spending doing plan B and was already saving herself 20 to 30 minutes a week, not even being great at it yet. And so that. Yeah, that changed her mind. Like, oh, we, yeah. we haven't even done a lot of solving of problems yet in a week, and I'm already saving time. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, um, parents are a, a major a major factor in having influence in the lives of their kids, and it's ideal if they can uh, learn about CPS, think about their kid through the lenses of lagging skills and unsolved problems, and identify um, unsolved problems that are happening at home and work with them using plan B to solve them durably. That will do a lot to teach kids important problem solving skills, flexibility skills, adaptability skills, frustration tolerance skills, social skills, all of these skills that we know that behaviorally challenging kids struggle with. And so, um, you know, that's always ideal. I'll have educators talk about how they're having a hard time connecting with parents. Do the parents need to know this model to to um, to have it be successful? And and parents ask the same thing. We're doing this at home, but school's not doing it. You will still make progress. Absolutely, might be a bit slower than if if the adults at school and at home were on the same page, using the same lenses and the same plan to address unmet expectations, but you will still make progress even if you're the one and only person in this child's life who's viewing them this way. Right, because it seems to me that uh, the entire situation is the kid just doesn't have a way to address the underlying issues. And even if there's only one source for it, it's got to be better than nothing. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, especially about older kids, well, you know, um, if they have a run in with the police or if they go to work, their boss isn't going to be doing plan B with them or the police aren't going to do plan B with them. And I would say you're probably right. And it takes skills to adjust to plan A. It takes flexibility and adaptability skills that behaviorally challenging kids typically lack. So if we teach them those skills through plan B and they run into plan A out there, they're going to be able to handle it and adjust better than they could now, you know? Um, but I would also say that if we think about our lives as, as adults, how often do we rely on our yes, sir, yes, ma'am skills and adapting to plan A skills versus how often do we rely on our problem solving skills? Um, I would say that we rely a lot more on our problem-solving skills than we do on having to adjust to a plan A. And so working with kids on developing those is really, really crucial. And by doing that, you'll start to give them some skills they need to adjust to plan A should they run into it. Great. 
Great. Now, one of the things that's always fascinated me about the Plan A idea is that kids who present challenging behaviors are often isolated or expelled from schools with the demand being given that they cannot return until they learn how to behave. But isn't that kind of like saying, you know, a child cannot go into the water until they learn how to swim? I mean, eventually they've got (laughs) to do something. (laughs) <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And I, I definitely agree with that analogy. Um, I find schools sometimes um, can be t- quite rigid. And I kind of describe them as a box sometimes. And if you don't fit in the box, we put you outside the box. Mm-hmm. And the, the schools that we work with start to realize that it's okay to have expectations. But yet, We've got to, just like we individualize how we're teaching kids and how they learn, we need to individualize how we um, support behavior and work with kids in, 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 um, in skills acquisition. You know, so, so the schools we work with tend to become more of like an amoeba than a box and, um, you know, apply that, that concept of individualization to um, addressing what's not working. And they get a lot farther by doing that. And, you know, that's why, you know, the book for educators is called The Kids We Lose. Um, I'm sorry, that's that's the name of our documentary. It's called Lost at School, uh, similar kind of um, phrasing there, because, you know, exactly what you said, they're, they're put on the outside of the box until they can figure it out. And yet, they need us to help them figure it out. We've got to figure out why are they challenging? We've got to figure out when they're challenging so that we can partner with them to help them solve those problems and gain those skills they need. And then they will be able to function better. Yeah. That just makes a whole lot more sense. Uh, Yeah. I, I like to think so. And the, you know, when I learned this model, it was, oh man, maybe 15, 16 years ago, and I was working in residential care with adolescents and talk about kids who had been given up on, you know, they'd been expelled from school, can't live at home because their behaviors are so dangerous. They'd given up on themselves. Many had spent time in jail. And to see when we changed our lenses and how we were thinking about these kids, the, the progress we saw was amazing. We, you know, we stopped restraining them (laughs) and using seclusion and all of that. We looked at them in terms of lagging skills and unsolved problems. We started partnering with them to solve those problems. We started to see them learn some great skills in terms of problem solving and flexibility and frustration tolerance and social skills and others. And they started to kind of come back to life and we saw a different kid. Um, And so absolutely makes a lot more sense to me. Right. than the old way. Right, right. And speaking of that, can you give us some examples of kids who have been through the CPS approach and have made progress with their lives? Ooh, yeah, too, too many to count. Um, I can certainly point folks to our website, livesinthebalance.org. Um, we have a radio program. It's monthly for parents. And all of the back programs are archived. And there's one particular one called uh, The Explosive Child Returns, where... Um, a child uh, who is now an adult um, whose parents sought our help when he was a teenager and he was exploding and things were chaotic and um, concerning and parents got good at the CPS model. He got good at the CPS model and he talks about, um, he reflects on that and he talks about his life today and it's a very uplifting story. So that's one place to look for an example Um, lots of examples also on Facebook. If folks are on Facebook, we have a page called lives in the balance, but we also have Facebook groups. Um, one for parents of, um, challenging kids. It's called the B team. 
and that's the letter B, the B team, tons of very active group, uh, over 14,000 people in that group, and they're posting all the time. And there's tons of success stories in there. There's also people struggling in there. So it's a nice mix of people new to the model, people who have done the model for years and years and years. So there's there's lots in there as well. Um, so I would I would point people in that direction too for some real specifics and you know, the, the parents on the B team are so gracious and they're very open to questions and giving of themselves because they were there once too. And um, it was hard and it was different shifting lenses and maybe one parent shifted, but the other one didn't. And, you know, you name it, um, that group has been through it. And so they're very giving of their experience because they're so passionate about the, um, the success that they've seen and, and what's happened for their fa- for their families as a result. And so it's a great place to ask questions and get support. And I imagine that uh, there's probably the same with adults, too, who have been through the program and success stories are found there as well. Absolutely, yeah. And um, we also have a group for educators. It's called Lost and Found. And so for that side of things, if folks are interested in talking to teachers, principals, uh, superintendents about, you know, their process and implementing the model. And, um, you know, there's often a lot of talk in there about how the model is used with uh, between colleagues, (laughs) Um, which I think is really key, especially like we said before, um, people who might be having trouble implementing the model that they have concerns too. And so, you know, seeking to understand and use the model with them to really, you know, figure out a way to come together and to make sure all parties concerns are addressed. Um, and then of course, adults also can use the CPS approach to help their lives. And even those who've been through school and had all their problems and now they're in adulthood, they can also benefit from this kind of training as well. Oh, yeah. I would say I'm proof positive of that. Um, (laughs) I talk often in trainings um, because it's, you know, it's kind of a silly thing. It sounds like a silly thing, but it wasn't silly for me that, um, you know, I was always a pretty cognitively rigid kid. I especially had trouble when the plan would change. And um, my parents didn't read it that way, loved them dearly. They didn't know how to read it that way. So they read it as she just wants her own way. And so Flash forward, I'm an adult and I'm running an organization that has 12, the clinical side of an organization that has 12 programs and, you know, I have to put out a lot of fires. And so I have this calendar, it's very detailed, you know, and I would have to not do what I was planning to do many days to put out fires and address other issues. And so, um, you know, because I was on the mild end of what we call the spectrum of looking bad, you know, I wasn't throwing chairs when this would happen <laughs> or hurting people. Right. I was just sort of becoming anxious. And then what would happen is I would be snippy or, you know, say something I didn't mean or certainly didn't translate well in a professional setting or a personal setting. So I talk a lot about um, a particular story when when my husband and I were, were kind of first together and he... Um, told me one day he was, and he's a fabulous cook. He told me he was going to make meatball subs for dinner, which was a big deal because I have celiac disease and I hadn't had a meatball sub in years. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I was going through my work day and at the end of the day I was, you know, rehearsing, I, I rehearse everything I have to do to try to not forget. Um, mm-hmm. I, I still do that. And then mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I kept saying meatball subs, meatball subs. Right. So I get home and he got home before me and he was already cooking. It smelled great, but it wasn't meatball subs. It was chicken stir fry, ah. which I like. And 
I had trouble adjusting to that. I, and, and by this time, I had found the CPS model and I knew that I struggled with this. So at least I knew it. And so I was standing there going, don't say anything mean, don't get snippy, don't get anxious, you know. And I said to him, remember, I told you that thing when I think it's going to be one way, but it turns out to be another. And he's like, yeah, because he's, you know, he's like, so what? Because he's as flexible as the day is long, you know. Right. And, um, and I'm like, it's happening right now. And he's like, it is? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go in the other room for a minute. <laughs> and so, you know, but that was the beginning of me figuring out some strategies to adjust um, mm. to a change in the plan. And it took a couple different tries as problem solving often does. But to this day, I use the strategy when a plan changes. I use the strategy of um, what are you most worried about is what I ask myself. And that's my strategy. And then I can figure out what has me worried and I can figure it out in a matter of not even seconds and adjust, you know? And so a couple months after that, he uh, called me on the phone and he said, we were supposed to move into our house in two weeks. And my apartment was in boxes because we were moving. Um, mm. I'm sorry, we were supposed to be moving in three days. <laughs> so oh. my apartment was in boxes. And he called me up and he said, there's a snag with the bathroom renovation. So we're not moving for two weeks. And I, that would have normally sent me over the edge. But because I had my strategy and I figured out, well, I don't have a place to live, but maybe I can call the landlord but if, and extend our stay. But if that doesn't work, my parents would be happy to have us. So that's fine. I, I adjusted to it. No problem. Never felt anxiety or anything. I was so excited. I started calling people because <laughs> <laughs> this is something I lived with for so many years, you know, um, and so fi finally figuring it out. And then fixing it so so things go better relationally. And I, I just felt free. I really did. And so uh, absolutely not too late. Not too late at all. That's great. Now, another thing that some of our listeners might be wondering about is, can the CPS approach be modified for kids who are nonverbal? Because we do have a lot of people out there with kids who just struggle to even speak. Absolutely. Um, the reference point we use is infants. You know, um, so I have a son. He's two he was an infant not too long ago. And, um, you know, he doesn't have language to tell me what's wrong, but he mm -hmm. can indicate it somehow. Of course, for him, it was crying. Right. And then, you know, I really had to, at that point for him, I had to have my right lenses on, like he'd do well if he could, something's getting in the way, what's getting in the way, what's happening, what's the problem he can't solve. And then I would have to guess, is he hungry? Is he tired? Does he need to be changed? Does he need to be held? And then, you know, you get feedback when you figure it out because he stops crying, right? And so that, that same thinking can be applied to nonverbal kids, you know, um, that it really all starts with the way that you as the adult are reading what you're seeing. You know, um, when he was 18 months, he, we were at the library and he started throwing trains and screaming. Um, what, what I saw happen before that was that his sister, who was never interested in the train table, was suddenly interested in it. She picked up the very train he had just put down, but he wasn't actually done with it. He was fixing the tracks and then he was going to pick it up again. Ah. She didn't know that, you know, and so and I knew it only because I was watching from a distance. So I, you know, rather than going over and saying, you can't yell in the library, you can't throw trains, apologize to your sister. I go in thinking, well, he'd do well if he could, and he knows that he can't throw things. He knew that at 18 months. I had told him that, right? And so I went in and I went, what could be getting in the way? Oh, did, did sister pick up the train and you weren't done with it yet? And I was right because he stopped screaming. 
And then I said, that's okay. She didn't know. Let's go tell her. So we went over and we said, sister, he wasn't done with his turn yet. Can he have that? And then you have a turn with it in a few minutes. And she said, okay. And he was fine. Yeah, um, so it's very much in how you read it. Now, with, with kids who are uh, maybe a bit older, you can communicate with them in the ways they communicate. If they use sign language, you can use pictures, you know, and because kids, no matter what their verbal ability, need a way to let you know what something's the matter. And so however they communicate that, you work from there. And we actually have on our website, it's under CPS resources and then paperwork. If you scroll down, we have some um, images, some pictures of uh, concerns and potential solutions, just examples uh, on there. We used Google Images to find them. Just be warned that when you use Google Images, you might see some things you actually wish you didn't see, but it can be very helpful mm. for coming up with uh, pictorial ways of representing uh, potential concerns and potential solutions. Right. Uh, so absolutely. And we've done some um, parent radio programs on that very topic as well. You can find it. And if you go into the parent radio program, the title is Will CPS Work With My Kid? And you go in there and you'll find some some radio programs about that. Oh, that's great. And, uh, you know, with Google Images, you just have to make sure the kids aren't looking while you're searching. Yes, exactly, because you just never know. <laughs> yeah, you don't sit right down, well, look at this. Oh, no, don't look at that. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you could sit down one-to-one -one with educators or school officials or even politicians who believe strongly that punishment and control, or plan A as you call it, is the only way to handle misbehaving kids, what would you tell them about the benefits of the CPS approach to get them to give it a try? Well, um, I find that making sure that they understand that um, having an expectation and plan A are not the same thing. You only need a plan when the expectation is not met. Then I would talk with them about when we kind of dissect plan A, what it involves. And it involves the imposition of adult will, which by definition involves power. Um, then I would talk with them about you know, wondering is power the primary currency we want to use to have influence over kids? And what are we teaching them when we do that? You know, that's kind of a dangerous lesson that might makes right. Um, you know, in our experience, power causes conflict. It makes certainly makes behaviorally challenging kids worse, pushes them farther downstream. Um, power neglects the concerns of at least one of the parties. And a solution doesn't have to be win-lose to work. There's no reason it can't be win-win. Um, I would also say that power produces solutions that they're not mutually satisfactory, so they're not durable. You know, that it, it often works temporarily, but if you have to keep revisiting it, then what's your definition of it works, you know? Um, collaboration brings people together, you know, and we, uh, Dr. Green uses the example often of, you know, a kid, you're in a parking lot and cars are going fast for whatever reason, and your kid's about to walk in front of a speeding car. Well, at that point, you're going to use plan A. You're going to yank on his arm and you're going to save his life, right? That is what you're going to do. Hmm. And if you notice that your kid keeps walking in front of cars in parking lots, then plan A didn't do anything to solve the problem durably. We didn't find out anything about why the kid is having trouble not stepping in front of cars that are moving, right? So you're going to have to go with a different plan for some durable solution because you don't want to have to keep having that 
extreme worry and yanking his arm every time you're in a parking lot. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's a lot of thinking through like and making sure people know their options and making sure people know that their concerns will get addressed, that they will continue to have influence with kids because that's important, that expectations need to be pursued, absolutely, and yet there's a different way to do it that does actually work better in many ways. Right, right. I like the uh, the way you kind of uh, describe it on the website, that it's sort of like uh, treating the symptoms rather than the illness itself. Yes. Mm-hmm. exactly. Yep. Where behavior right. is just a symptom and we've got to be looking for what caused it and, and focus there, focus the interventions there. Right, right. And what would you say to parents who are listening to the podcast right now and they're hoping that the CPS approach could help their kids, but they're worried that their child's school or other areas will be reluctant to invest or adopt the CPS approach? Pretty common concern. Um, again, a lot of support on Facebook, especially uh, in the B team. And also we have another group for parents called Elevate Your Parenting. And that's for parents of any kids, not just um, super challenging kids. Uh, so a lot of support in there. I would say, um, well, before I say that, I would also say that there's another resource on the website called a care package where you can send a care package of CPS information to anyone you'd like. And you could send it anonymously if you want to start getting them to think differently. But then I would also say that um, use the model with the adults that are that they're worried about, because uh, again, adults are usually concerned that their their concerns won't get addressed, you know, and and they might misunderstand and think we're going to hand the keys to the building over to the kid, which is not CPS, not at all. Expectations are good; you need to have them. Um, and so, and, and try to understand where the adults are coming from and share where you're coming from and, and work towards some solutions, you know. Um, there's a ton of resources on the website that are free. The entire model is on the website for free. Um, so if you go to livesinthebalance.org, under CPS resources, there's a parent link. There's also an educator's link. And so depending on who you are, you can click there and you'll find uh, walking tours of the model in video, audio and downloadable formats. And so you can point folks to to those things, which are all free and um, might help, you know, provide some information uh, to clarify any concerns uh, as well. My thanks again to Kim Hopkins for some great information about the collaborative and proactive solutions approach. We have links to all the various website information at livesinthebalance.org that she mentioned in our interview on our main page for this podcast, specialparentsconfidential.com. As always, please share Special Parents Confidential with your friends, your family, all your connections on social media. You can do this easily with the social media buttons located right on our episode page. Also, be sure to sign up for our email service so you can have new posts and podcast episodes delivered right to your inbox the moment they're available online. That form is also available on the main page of our website. Anything you can do to help spread the word about Special Parents Confidential will help us to be able to continue these podcasts. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.